0: Welcome, everybody. Uh, thank, you, thank you for coming to the LSE and to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on being progressive. Um, now, one of the big questions, obviously, that we're going to be um, talking about is what does it actually mean to be progressive? What do we mean when we talk about this term? Um, originally, progressivism emerged kind of as a response to, um, to the industrialization and the vast sort of social changes associated with that and the, and the challenges faced by people. And I think Commonly, progressivism is uh, associated with sort of left-wing political movements. So you might have various associations with the term. Um, I'm sure we're going to debate some of these later on, but some of the associations you might have, uh, perhaps things like progressive taxation, living wage, strong unions, perhaps also green politics, things like that. Um, But I think, and this is, why I'm looking particularly forward to to the debate today, um, some people might want to challenge that association as well. In particular, um, one of our speakers today, I think, uh, wants to challenge that association between left-wing politics and the notion of of being progressive. And so um, I think we can look forward to a really lively debate tonight, and um, we have two... Really interesting speakers tonight. Um, Polly Toynbee, as you will all know, is a Guardian columnist who was formerly a BBC social affairs editor, columnist, and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of the Washington Monthly, and also reporter and feature writer for The Observer. And she has published various books, um, some of which she some of which you might have read, including Hard Work, Life in Low-Pay Britain, Lost Children, Story of Adopted Children, Searching for for Their Mothers, The Way We Live Now, Hospital, The Working Life, and also is recently co-authored with David Walker, um, Better or Worse, Has Labour Delivered, and uh, even more recently, Dogma and Disarray, Cameron at Half Time, an assessment of the current government. Um, And a partner in this debate tonight will be Maurice Fraser, who is a senior fellow in European politics at the LSE. And he is among other things, um, his list of affiliations is actually quite long, so I'm not going to be able to name all of them, but amongst other things, he is director of Agora Projects, a senior counselor for APCO Worldwide, vice chair and trustee of the Franco-British Council. He's also a trustee and executive committee member of the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, and a former consultant to Merrill Lynch, BBC World Service, the European Commission, and he also was a special advisor to the UK foreign secretaries, Douglas Hurd, John Mayer, and Sir Geoffrey Ho. And um, so, like I said, I think it's going to be an interesting debate tonight. Um, If you want to tweet along during the debate, um, we have a Twitter hashtag, which is LSE Progressive, so I'd be uh, grateful if you could use that hashtag as you tweet along. Um, one tweet we've already had uh, from Polly earlier, I was checking Twitter before I came in and she said, surely you can't be a conservative and progressive so there we go, it's already uh, the opening statement as it were and with that I'll just uh, hand over to the two speakers, so I think we'll begin by Polly briefly outlining her views on the matter and then Maurice will be responding to that and we'll have a little bit of of a debate on the panel and then we'll have a lot of time for discussion with you guys
1: as well, thank you Thank you very much. Um, Yes, I've got a lot of of good answers to to my tweet on this, so I'm sure we're going to have a a very lively debate. I'm really going to set out to start with what could be called this of orthodox, traditional, uh, rather conventional view of what it is to be a progressive. Um, But first of all, a word or two of caution about the word, and I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time talking about the history of the word and the ways it's been used uh, internationally and and through time. Uh, New Labour adopted it in its triangulating phase, and I never liked it. Um, I always thought of it as just a way of avoiding saying left of centre or centre-left, New Labour decided they didn't like right and left, partly because these days in focus groups, when people are asked, they don't tend to define themselves. Only handfuls of very politicised and mostly older people define themselves in terms of left and right. Uh, I mean, you've only got to talk to someone for a short while and you begin to see which way they bend, but it isn't necessarily the language they use. And so Labour felt they had better have a more inclusive word that didn't carry so much baggage. So progressives is what they became, and progress is the sort of new Labour Mandelson wing of the the Labour Party. Uh, And it's a very sort of moderate Fabian sort of word, and I think we can probably live with it. But political words are always shape-shifting and changing and on the move, and... uh, They're slippery, and you have to grab hold of them while you can, but then discard them when they're not any use. So I don't think one should get over-attached to any particular... After all, we used, when I was growing up, to talk about liberal with a small L. That used to be the same thing. It used to encapsulate a, a general idea of a state of mind and an attitude towards society. But I think that's really gone, and it's been pretty much killed off by the U.S. right um, where Fox News, Tea Party, all of those people, Bushes, used it as a straightforward term of abuse. And they were so successful at it that I don't think many Democrats actually describe themselves as liberal any longer. Uh, and they also look about for other phrases and they might also use, use progressive. Um, I think now this is true of all sorts of other political concepts that you might have said originally were Progressive or liberal or centre left. But you can find any politician, even Ian Duncan Smith and Chris Grayling, uh, claiming to believe in social justice and fairness and equal opportunities and social mobility. Uh, no politician is ever against any of those. So it always comes down to how you interpret them, what do you mean by fair. Nobody ever says I'm for unfairness, everybody says I'm for my sort of fairness. And I think everybody believes that their own political views are about fairness, whether it's fair to keep everything you earn because you earned it or fair to distribute it so you live in a more equal society. Those are two visions of of fairness. So um, the words have become very difficult and I think there is a shortage of political language at the moment to describe quite profound, deeper divisions than there have been for a long time between this government and where labor is, although you wouldn't call labor very far to the left. Nevertheless, I feel this government has moved significantly to the right of where Mrs. Thatcher was, and yet the language has become blurred, and that's not quite how they describe themselves. It's always by their policies and by their actions, in the end, that you know them. And most of my time as a political writer, I write much more about policies, actions, outcomes, than I do about the language, the words, and the philosophy, Because in the end, that's what matters. And in the books that I've written, you mentioned we wrote a book called The Verdict, um, which was about all of Labour's 13 years. It's a book that analyses all the policies, what worked, what didn't, what they did, what they didn't do, and is not about the Westminster arguments, the Brown-Blair disputes, or any of that. Because in the end, coming from the social policy route, that's always what's interested me most about politics. So I'll try and give, nevertheless, I will accept the word progressive, I will adopt it, and I will seek to hold on to it this evening, and uh, hold on tight to it. I would say that it is an instinct. It is a way of thinking. It is what the old-fashioned liberal small L used to be. It's against discrimination, for gay rights, for abortion, for divorce, for all personal freedoms that harm no one else. It stands for the underdog by instinct against the powerful, its immediate response to something is to stand by the downtrodden. Um, it's for greater equality. Now, that used to be a difficult thing to say before the Berlin Wall came down in the old days. Ah, so you, you're a Soviet, really. Um, but we are now in such a completely different economy that uh, it's very easy to say you're for greater equality because in a room full of almost, uh, people of almost any political exp- uh, persuasion except the most extreme neoliberals, Uh, If you say, um, do you think that it's right that we should continue on this trajectory of getting more and more unequal, and what's more, that's now accelerating, and after this government's five years, it will have accelerated hugely the distance between the top and the bottom, and that it should go on like that forever. Most people will say, well, I don't know, it might be all right now, maybe I'm happy with it as it is now, but I don't like the idea of that a society that, you know, breaks apart at some point. At some point, we're not all in the same society. And then if you say, well, actually, Labour tried incredibly hard invested a huge amount of money and effort and social programmes and almost managed to hold it steady, but not quite. It got slightly more unequal, mostly because the top 1% soared away. Uh, so it takes a huge amount of conscious effort just to stand still. Then people understand why redistribution is so important that you have to do a lot of it. And this government is taking a lot of it away, but you have to do a lot of it just to stand still. So it's quite easy to talk about greater equality now without people saying, oh, I see, so you want to be Soviet, don't you? Because we are so far from anything remotely resembling anything socialist. That's not what we're talking about. It's a very Fabian concept these days. Um, To be a progressive, I think, is to live in optimism that the future can always be better, and that we can try to make it so. Uh, conservatives, on the whole, yearn for a better yesterday. It's the Daily Mail world of golden ageism. And it's existed since the beginning of time. You can read back to, you know, you, you you can read back to the ancients and see how they too always yearned, always believed that, say, their grandparents' generation when their grandparents were young. Were when things were perfect, when children obeyed their parents and teenagers weren't difficult, and life was better, and our people knew their place. There was orderliness in society. So we have always, as human beings, lived with that tug backwards towards a nostalgia of a time just before we can actually remember the reality. And that, I think, is a very important part of a conservative frame of mind. I don't think you know, it's altogether invalid. I think it's important to have that sense of history, tradition, and all of that as one part of the brain. And in a sense, everybody's brain is divided. The question is by what proportion between uh, some conservative and traditionalist instincts and, and some progressive ones. But progressives don't yearn for a better yesterday because they know, at least up until now, it may not always be true, my lifetime, there has never been a better time to be alive than now. There has never been more freedom. There has never been more opportunity for everybody. Well, not for everybody, but more than there ever was. And if you look, for, if you look backwards, you're always looking back to a less fair, less equal uh, uh, a society where there was less opportunity. I think a progressive will always say our fate is in our hands, it's up to us. We can decide to be Swedish, we can decide to be American. We have political choices in our hands. We tend not to be religious, we tend not to be superstitious because we believe we control our destiny, give or take nature. And we all should be controlling that a bit more too. Um, We believe in the collective endeavour, that it's good in itself to do things together, And what we do together is almost always better than what we do alone as individuals. That that progress has come from uh, mankind as a social animal. That leads to a natural trust in the good that the state does. And that the state is, at its best, uh, an expression of that sense of togetherness and an expression of our sense of uh, collective wish to, to to improve ourselves and that paying taxes is not a burden but is the civilised thing to do Is the price you pay for that civilised society. And yes, of course, we're also very aware of the dangers of the state. Because we are for the underdog, that makes us guardians of civil liberties as well and say we know the state can be oppressive. We don't believe that majorities are always right. And that's a delicate balance. But those, I think, are the basic... Instincts of what it is to be a progressive, and that's how I shall interpret the word and try to hold on tight to it. Thank you.
2: Well, um, Polly, um, you um, you set out a definition of progressive, which I. Not, was not surprised to hear from your, uh, from your, your lips, um, and, um, and you set it out most articulately, most eloquently. Um, you said that you weren't very interested in language and words and philosophy, and you were interested in policy and policy outcomes and things that make a difference and so on. Um, but words and language do matter a lot in politics, um, and um, it's particularly important, they serve a very important purpose because they attempt to describe in a sort of schematic way um, a program or a party, what it's about, it's mission statement, in a way that people can understand and then make an informed decision on. And I think there, there are very real problems with the word um, progressive. Um, and I'm, I'm keen to uh, submit it to a spot of, uh, of, of, de- of deconstruction, if I can say in this context of a. A foreign for European philosophy, without getting hopefully too arcane or technical. I certainly don't intend to do uh, to do that. Um, clearly, it's an important word. It distills much of our Western intellectual uh, and normative tradition, uh, and um, uh, it's a world which, it's a word which holds out so much promise, and, and which in theory should have the ability to animate the public uh, the public sphere. Yet my heart uh, actually sinks on hearing it. And though having said that, I. I would like this evening. I hope we can try to uh, not to bury it, not to bury it, but to uh, rescue it from banality and misappropriation and, and tribal uh, capture. Because I think rarely has an important idea uh, managed the impressive feat of being uh, politically hijacked by one political uh, current or tribe, and yet at the same time being so denuded of content and rendered ultimately. Uh, banal, to the extent that progressive has become rather like motherhood, but at least motherhood is easy to describe and progressive isn't. And I think it's a pity because we do need a concept which uh, expresses our aspiration uh, as a society to get to a better place. Now, I'm not going to try to claim it uh, for the centre-right or the right. I I dare say to many of you in the audience that may seem counterintuitive, though I personally think it's perfectly possible to mount a very good uh, case to that effect. And I don't think we should perhaps argue about, um, uh, not that you're suggesting we should, but I was going to say I don't think we should argue about ownership uh, of the word or arguing about which policies can be counted as progressive or which can't, uh, because I don't think that would get us uh, far. And the argument would then risk becoming rather circular and self-referential, um, and which is like concern I had about the way you set out the basic tenets of progressive, uh, as you see it. Um, I think that they are actually, most of the key ideas that underpin it are much more uh, contestable. And there's a sense in which progressive belongs to everyone and to no one. Um, and that complexity and contestability uh, make it a rather poor signpost for politics. I think there are several problems with it. First of all, it's historically specific. Um, the Greeks certainly had a strong idea of the idea uh, of the notion of progress, of the past and present future of progress. They saw it as the advancement of, of knowledge, and they placed a great premium on innovation in particular. And then there were the millenarian and utopian thinkers of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and they too looked forwards, not backwards. But what they were interested in doing was building, uh, was, uh, was not a project for this world. It was for uh, another world. And it's really from the 18th century, I suppose the late 18th century in the French Revolution, um, that um, uh, those uh, who aligned themselves with progress uh, were clear about where the battle lines should be drawn. And the French Revolution was that historical moment. Uh, Hegel offered a philosophical teleology uh, which um, fed ne- neatly after that into the optimism of 19th century positivism. But the problem is that historical specificity is, is, a, is a very poor basis uh, for political identity and for ideological alignment, because the world moves on and the political terms of trade uh, change, as you yourself acknowledged in your opening remarks, it was all much simpler then. Uh, on one side of the field were the forces of reaction, of hierarchy, uh, the established those who championed the established authority of the first and second estates, the nobility and the clergy, privileging superstition over knowledge, men consciously looking to turn the clocks back, um, and. Uh, defining themselves, in the case of some French French thinkers, political thinkers at the time, against this existential calamity, as they saw it, of the revolution. And at the other end of the battlefield, we know what the forces were, the forces of enlightenment and modernity, embracing human rights, science, secularism, social reform, freedom from oppression, intolerance, and so on. In other words, the word progressive came to be defined in the arena of values, but there's an etymological problem, I think, here as, as, as well as a problem of normative context because progressive has other meanings as well. It has value-free descriptive definitions um, as well as a normative one. And this is where things start to get quite complicated. Um, it has the sense of gradualism, obviously. You heard to Fabianism in that context rather than violent upheaval. And it's also used to express a, a stable uh, but dynamic relationship where the factors multiply um, themselves or intensify each other uh, intensify and multiply each other in a, proportionate re- uh, in a proportionate relationship. The more you earn, the more you pay in tax. So there are certainly four, I would suggest, ontological strands here. And complex concepts are not good for mobilizing political support. Simple, clear um, concepts are much more effective. But let's look, I just want to look at this, uh, the normative meaning, a little bit more closely. Um, because even um, even though different political traditions, I would suggest, can make a perfectly plausible claim to progressivism. Rather than getting bogged down in what my idea of progress is, and your idea of progress is, and getting into that kind of subjectivist, relativist um, swamp. um, uh, Let's stick for now with the dominant uh, narrative. What I suggest is a fading enlightenment-based narrative. Um, And I suggested that, I've said that progressive as an idea is historically specific, Uh, it belongs to that Enlightenment narrative which has I think dispersed into several channels, some joining, some crisscrossing, rather like the Nile Delta, running into the sand and just as swampy. And I would go further to say that that particular narrative has maybe even petered out, because are we not all children of the Enlightenment now? Even the florid-faced in the old buffer, the retired colonel sitting in the saloon bar of the dog and duck. He may not realize it, but he too has come to terms with modernity in a rather rather substantial way, and I think we should give him credit for that. And on all the ethical issues to which the progressive sensibility attaches importance, one can think of capital punishment, discrimination on the basis of race or gender or sexual orientation. The socially dominant attitudes now are ones which progressives and the whole would approve of. We don't send little boys up chimneys any longer. And the normative, I don't think one should underestimate the normative consensus, certainly between center-left and center-right. It is real. And it's well demonstrated in regular surveys of social attitudes. I think one would have to be very tribal, indeed, to defend an ever-shrinking definition of what constitutes progressive. And it's partly in recognition of that fact that the modernizing left and proponents of the ill-fated third way, remember that? Um, and I know uh, Polly doesn't particularly cherish the memory of it, as, as she uh, suggested. Um, that mission, those involved in that mission, tried to overhaul the left project and take on board some ideas of the right, whilst trying to reassure itself that it hadn't lost sight of its core of its core values. A form of sort of political camouflage: um, drop references to socialism, to the left, even social democracy, anything that could frighten the horses. And stick the epithet progressive uh, next to whatever you're organizing. Conference, a seminar, a think tank, uh, a policy paper, a manifesto, call it progressive. In the hope that people would recognize that it still had its heart broadly in the right place, hadn't really sold out to mammon and to the market. It was like saying don't worry guys, we're all, uh, we're all civilized. We're still civilized. And effectively the word progressive became slave of the left's ideological contortions and tactical footwork. Now I suggest that the ideological rethinks on the centre-left and centre-right, which we start to see happen in the 1990s and which accelerated in the the early 2000s, economic rethink on the centre-left, social and ethical rethink perhaps on the centre-right, they have steadily, those trends have have sapped the word progressive of meaning. For the left in the 1990s, the rethink meant coming to terms uh, with the fact that public spending must have its limits, that markets mattered, that the supply side of the economy needed uh, attention, for example, through deregulation of labour markets, privatisation, more innovative forms of delivery for public goods. Was it reactionary of Gerhard Schroeder um, to um, reform Germany's restrictive labour laws, or was it progressive? Uh, the reforms ran into strong opposition from the traditional left, but they were enacted by a social democrat. So is that enough to make them progressive? surely we need to avoid circular definitions of, uh, of what progressive is, i.e. that progressive is as a self-styled progressive does, echoing Herbert Morrison's adage that socialism is what a Labour government does. And I'm sure that even Polly wouldn't, wouldn't go along with the idea that progressive is what Labour does. And if the modernising left has moved rightwards too, rather sheepishly, on many social and ethical issues, as I've suggested, um, so the right has moved in a liberal direction. And let's, talking of liberals and um, and and political labels, let's not forget, for example, that liberals in Europe have been broadly progressive on uh, social and ethical issues, using working with this definition of progressive, which uh, is, I would suggest, still the largest part of the normative narrative. Liberals have been strongly um, uh, committed, as I say, to uh, under, seen as progressive and social uh, ethical issues, whilst being strongly committed to markets and bourgeois capitalism, and therefore seen in many countries as being more on the right of the political spectrum, and sometimes to the right of Christian Democrats. Why is it the German Greens are much better disposed to conservative Christian Democrats than they are to capitalist individualist liberals? Well, because Christian Democrats have a vision of society, uh, I guess. And basically, what I'm saying is that post-ideological politics—I and I think we'll all agree we all agree—we are, in a sense, we are now in an era of post-ideological politics, are marked by a confusion of signposts, um, and progressive doesn't really help us out of the maze. In fact, it leads us down a standard blind alley, in which parties with almost nothing in common, but uh, uh, other than being driven by tactical considerations of advantage, can toy airily with this idea of a progressive coalition or a rainbow coalition, uh, uniting liberals and Greens and Social Democrats and Communists as if they were fighting the Spanish Civil War. Um, Such coalitions hardly ever materialise in practice and for rather good reason. But just in my concluding remarks, I just want to stick with this normative values-based definition just a bit longer because I'm sure that some of you will say, perhaps you will say, Polly, we'll see, We'll say that some of these, all these caveats and qualifications, are all well taken. Uh, but isn't there a conception of distributive justice which marks out a progressive person, and that I think is precisely what uh, Polly was saying in the latter part of her remarks? Will a progressive person not have more regard uh, for the needs of the underclass uh, and the poor and the socially excluded than a non-progressive person? Well, I don't think that that is the case. If it were possible, if it were possible, it's a big if, to to, um, identify a category of distributive outcomes which clearly favor the disadvantaged, um, then maybe we could say, okay, let's try and assemble critical mass behind this definition because this would express a clear set of political preferences, of policy choices specifically. But it's not so easy. Distributional outcomes which favor the underclass are, to say the least, contestable. Take crime, for example. It is a fact that victims of crime are proportionately uh, poorer, are disproportionately poorer and more vulnerable people. What if a tough law and order policy, the kind of policy which we would traditionally describe as right-wing, reduces crime and therefore disproportionately benefits the socially excluded? Does a progressive approach to law and order have to mean an exclusive accent on, for example, non-custodial sentences and rehabilitation? Or take tax. What if a lower marginal rate of tax generates uh, more revenue for the exchequer and therefore for funding public services? What if a free school gives opportunities to underprivileged children in a neighborhood poorly served by existing state schools? What if restrictive labor laws, supported incidentally by supposedly progressive um, actors uh, like trade unions, what if those laws protect insiders at the expense of Outsiders, such as young people and ethnic minorities, such as happen in several, such as happens in several European countries. And what should we make of John Rawls's second principle of justice, the so-called maximin principle, which holds that economic inequalities are acceptable as long as the poorer section of society is better off in absolute terms than it would otherwise be? Which of those, uh, which is something which many on the left would object to, who would rather have smaller differentials in income, even if that meant uh, a lower absolute standard of living for the, the worse off. And you can argue the toss either way. Both, you could put a perfectly, quote-unquote, progressive rationale for either of those scenarios. So I'm not saying that there is, there isn't, there is, that there is a simple answer to these uh, questions that I put, but merely that there is a scope, I think, for legitimate disagreement amongst, quote-unquote, progressives. And even, and that's a big if, if we accept this particular normative, widely used normative benchmark, of what progressive is, which I will call the center-left enlightenment um, narrative. So just in summary, I think we ask an awful lot of the word progressive, uh, and yet we ask nothing of it at the same time, and we treat it as something of of, of an empty vessel. And and I I think it's time to maybe to leave it um, to its descriptive definitions, its value-neutral ones, which are mostly temporal and dynamic. And for a normative um, vision of what a better society might look like, perhaps we should dust down the political lexicon uh, and come up with something better. If you're a socialist or a social democrat, then have the courage of your convictions and say so and try to win people over. If you just want to change things, why not just call yourself a reformer? And if you want to seriously change things, uh, why not call yourself a radical? Spell out your plans in your manifesto, but don't conflate facts and values in the way that I think the word progress uh, does. The result Uh, at best is pious and bland, at worst it leaves people uh, confused and and with overexposure um, it gets rather boring, rather like Monet's water lilies. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Well, um, now given that you have suggested that we should perhaps abandon um, and Polly earlier said she wanted to hold on to it tonight. I, I imagine um, you have a few things to say in response to, to what
1: I certainly have. Um, <laughs> I certainly have. I'm very happy to hold on to Social Democrat. That's fine for as long as people understand what it means. I don't, in any sense, regard it as rebarbative or difficult to, or, or somehow sounding extreme these days. Um, I think when you talk about post-ideological politics, that is wildly off the mark. What we have is a government that is intensely ideological, that is absolutely set on using this current economic crisis as a shield and a cloak. Not that the crisis isn't real enough or that the deficit doesn't need to be paid down at some point, but using it as a shield and a cloak and an excuse for dismantling the welfare state uh, in a way that Mrs Thatcher never dared and that Mrs Thatcher set out to privatise the uh, state-run industries, this government is setting out to privatise the state itself. Uh, and that is a very profound, and if you like, radical and reforming word. Now, I think regard the words radical and reforming, which you were saying we should use, as even slipperier and more useless than progressive. Because progressive, at least you know which side of the line you're trying to be on when you say progressive. Radical and reforming can be just as much applied to it has been all along, by the right as by the left. Uh, it just means you're going to do something uh, radical and reforming. But, uh, well, reforming. I think you can spell
2: it out of the mm-hmm. manifesto. I mean, it, certainly yeah.
1: reform in some of the Labour Party parlance began to mean outsourcing and uh, shaking up the, private, uh, the, 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 the public services. And some people would say, you know, reform has carries with it the baggage that reform is always good. But, of course, reform often isn't good It often makes things worse. It ends up with some Labour people being put in a rather conservative and traditionalist um, position. But I want to take up your what-ifs, because they're very interesting. And as I'm a practical social policy person, I like the abstract ideas of what if crime and very tough policy and very tough uh, punitive policies actually, what if it reduced crime... And as you say, crime affects the poor much more than it affects the rich. Wouldn't that be a good thing to be very tough? But the answer is, of course, that it doesn't. Uh, And that if you look across the world, uh, across the Western world, crime has fallen remarkably since the 1990s, right across all societies, inexplicably. Uh, And right across, for instance, the states of the United States, some of which lock up huge numbers of people, and others of which lock up very few. And right across uh, Western countries, some of which are much more punitive, like this country, than others, it's fallen pretty much the same everywhere. Whether this is through more people staying on at school, getting more opportunities, more education, whether it's just gone out of fashion amongst the young, nobody knows. There are no good answers. But what's quite plain is that uh, policies, liberal or illiberal, have had very little impact. Um, Tax. You said, what if uh, a lower rate of tax actually brought in more revenue? That's the famous Laffer curve, which has been multiply exploded as an absolute nonsense. Well, it's not an absolute nonsense. There is a level. But if you look, for instance, in the standard economic textbook, I'm sure you all have Paul Graves, and you look up its reference to the Laffer curve and all of the academic research that has been on it, it concludes that it probably is true at around about 75%. But up until then, uh, there really is no evidence whatever that revenues drop and this course people cheat a lot then you chase after and catch them but that wasn't the point of the Laffer curve um, so i dismiss that schools, what if they did hugely increase the education levels of lots of poorer children all of the evidence so far which is said another, another I think 200 free schools have been announced today uh, is that these are groups of middle class parents in nicer areas on the whole setting up free schools there are exceptions to this of some teachers who set them up in certain places, and other, uh, but on the whole, that's where they are. Not necessarily in places where new schools are needed, but where particular groups of parents want a school that is pretty exclusionary. Because the point about exclusiveness is that you don't need to be a kind of super exam-ridden entry uh, admission system you simply need to be able to exclude, say, five or six of the worst families in each class so the school next door gets those five or six of the most chaotic families and the balance tips between the reputation of those schools very rapidly and one becomes highly popular and the other highly unpopular with a relatively small and quite hard to sift through uh, difference in their admissions policies. And that is what I suspect is going to happen with most, but not all, of these free schools, depending very much on runs An awful lot of them are religious, which by themselves means they pretty much screen out, because chaotic families tend not to go to church or mosque, every, whatever. Uh, so they are, by nature, somewhat exclusionary. Um, I've, I, I, it seems to me, though, that... Uh, what you know, what the outcome is, is what really is what really matters. You know that something is progressive by its effect, and it may be that lots of conservatives genuinely believe this sort of Goebb's whole move to restore grammar schools uh, will be uh, that they believe it will have a progressive outlook. It doesn't necessarily mean they're in bad faith when they say these things. They may passionately believe that the 1950s was a time of greater opportunity than now, a comprehensive era, when many more people go on to university, how they managed to think that a time when one in seven went to university was somehow better for the working classes and opportunity when so many left school at 16, a very bright people left school at 16, uh, compared with now has always been a mystery to me because none of the statistics support that view at all. Um, I think the... Um, the definition of, of, of progressive I'm feeling slightly happier about after listening to you, really. I think I'm, I'm slightly happier to hold on to it because I certainly think that um, radical and reforming doesn't do it.
2: Um, well, um, I'm all for evidence-based social science. I mean, I guess that's why I hang out here at LSE. Um, and uh, uh, struck by uh, how... Um, uh, how um, Difficult it can be to get a clinching set of evidence really for, to describe any social phenomena uh, or trend. Uh, I I'm not trying to set, give us a sort of morass of subjectivity and complexity in which to drown your very precise uh, points. I would suggest that several of them are at least uh, challengeable. Uh, what you said about higher education, it's certainly been, it was a policy of the last Thatcher government, as, as I'm sure you're aware, to expand access to higher education when the Conservatives came to power in 1979. But one in nine um, school leavers went into university. One in three left um, by 1997, and that went up closer towards one in two. Uh, and it had set itself the government a target of one in two, and it was getting towards that under. Uh, under Labour. Uh, I'm not sure who these people are who sort of hark back to um, those days of, of, of where higher education was a preserved exclusive minority. I certainly haven't come across them in, in, the, in the Conservative Party. Uh, on crime, we know that some experiments in crime – it's not to say that there aren't a whole number of factors which are impacting on crime uh, levels and there's a trend broadly to be welcome. It is the case that the policy of zero tolerance in New York did cut crime substantially. Um, and, uh, and I'm just trying to just therefore to elicit from that it may be, again, we have to qualify uh, some of our assumptions and, and just look, as you would say, in an evidence-based way where there have been experiments of say, a muscular approach to crime and then, of course, the balance needs to be struck between civil liberties and, uh, and, 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 uh, uh, and security um, but interesting things uh, um, happen. In terms of tax, I meant, of course, the highest rates marginal tax um and uh there are many many economists including ones who come arguing in this institution that the highest rates of tax of course there is a level uh at which it actually starts to reduce uh, uh income to the treasury um the french uh, the new french uh, socialist government is now having to uh, deal with the fact that there are there are very clear signs already of an exodus uh it's uh uh, it said it will honor its commitment to increase um, the top rate of income tax to um, seventy percent uh, on, sorry on capital o- over income sorry income yes income tax over a pretty large sum of money admittedly but um, uh, you don't just have to read the newspapers and I know it anecdotally from the French community uh, the number of rich French who are not packing their bags and leaving and also interestingly younger entrepreneurs who are not earning packets of money yet but who've got hopes for their business are just leaving, they say there is no future in a country like this, this cannot, um, this cannot um, uh, make, make sense so, but again I get back to the point and some of the kind of social public goods that I tried to describe um, really what constitutes uh, progressive or what constitutes a set of outcomes which clearly favour the most underprivileged group in society um, I think is not always clear. Um, I think that there are value judgments to make along the way. And I think one of the lessons of the last 20 years is that in policy instruments that would have been seen as progressive or as being of the left have been reviewed, have been found to be very blunt and clumsy in many, uh, in many instances. Um, and uh, there is a much broader awareness, including on, if you like, the modernizing of what I would call the intelligent left, about how to use policy, policy instruments which may not be traditionally status ones, but in order to deliver public goods more effectively. And I welcome that sort of opening up, if you like, of certain left-wing um, assumptions and, and, and taboos. And I think it's actually moved us into more interesting into, into more interesting territory. But just on the question, if I may, uh, Polly, I just cited the, the very familiar the the, the rules' second 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 principle. Um, now, what, I'd be interested to know where you come from on, on this point, or what do you think what the progressive position is. Is it smaller differentials in income, albeit at, at a, perhaps a lower absolute range level of range of income for everybody and certainly for the for the, for the lowest category, or is it better to tolerate larger differentials if the absolute standard of the worst What is is the progressive position? You seem quite clear what progressive is. What is is it? Because it's not clear to me. It's an
1: interesting question. It depends whether you're talking about, you know, extreme, desperately poor countries where people are actually starving. I think if you look at the research of the spirit level, the Wilkinson and Pickett book, um, and uh, it seems that, and also if you look at, say, the legatum... uh, ...institutes recent scale of countries, uh, most successful countries according to prosperity. The Nordics come top. Sweden, Norway, Denmark are top of their, of their scale. So they are also most equal. They have found equality, greater equality, not total equality. High taxes, and Sweden has 56.5% top rate, um, to be functional, to be economically functional and to, for everybody to prosper... Our very long and growing tail of pretty poor people—really, pretty much—if you look at the Resolution Foundation's work—from the middle, the bottom half—are a huge drag on the economy. They are not helping the general prosperity. It doesn't help to have a long tail of people left behind. Uh, we are heading towards greater inequality at a great pace. The um, the middle, let's talk about the middle, not the very poor, because, you know, you, you mentioned the word underclass, Let's part then for a bit. Let's just talk about the bottom half, the sort of low paid to middling paid to median, are falling behind very fast. The proportion of money that goes in wages and pay and salaries has been dropping as the proportion of profits rises. The amount that's sucked up to the top is increasing. Um the disparity between groups is growing, and this has to be bad economically and socially in every way you can think of. So that to try and produce a rather abstract idea, of would it be better to be very poor in a rich society, or would it be better to be uh, have less money but everybody have the same? In fact, the evidence in the spirit level is very much that equality makes every greater equality, not total equality I think that probably doesn't make everybody happy but great societies with greater equality like the Nordics make everybody feel better and that what makes people feel really bad and actually makes them physically sick is to be the left behind in a very rich society to have your nose pressed up against the window of a society where you and particularly your children can't join in where you can't afford for your children to have a birthday party or to go to other people's birthday parties because they can't afford the present. And this is true of now of increasing numbers of people. We're, we're talking of people in work, two-thirds of people who are poor are in work and not really able to participate, what Labour used to call social exclusion, growing numbers of those people who see that the idea that everybody has a holiday, you know, a week, two weeks, somewhere nice-ish, doesn't have to be some fantastic... And they can't happen to have that. You know, beginning of the next term, everybody gets up to say whether it be on holiday, growing numbers of children never have been. Um, that can't be right for anybody's satisfaction or happiness in the end. Um, and so I can't see how you posit it as this, this peculiar and choice between would I rather be absolutely richer or relatively or, or relative, uh,
2: absolutely richer but relatively poorer? Well, I, I think, I personally think there is still a choice to, to make, but um, you, um, a couple of points, um, Polly, uh, struck me. Um, first of all, we know that uh, choosing the right policy instrument to achieve a desired, uh, the desired outcome is fiendishly hard. And we know that a lot of the policy instruments that have actually been put together, the basic uh, dispensation post war, welfare state dispensations conducted under what's loosely called butskillism perhaps, has not served the interests of the underclass at all well. Um, uh, The middle classes, broadly speaking, have been able to take themselves off into private health and education, Uh, and we have, particularly in Britain, a particularly entrenched um, underclass. Um, And uh, every time that, clearly the system has not worked to their advantage. And every time somebody comes along with ideas for quite radical structural reform and, and, and draws attention to the, the, the degree of welfare dependency, to the perverse effects of the benefit system and so on, they're accused of actually being sort of, you know wicked out to dismantle the welfare state, to privatise and so on and so on. Clearly, the ex- existing dispensation does not work. It doesn't mean to say that all alternatives must work, but it does not, not worked. The Labour government, the last Labour government, found it very difficult to tackle it. In fact, as you know, inequality overall actually increased under the last Labour government. No one doubted their sincerity as socialists or social democrats to try to avoid such a scenario, but they couldn't find, pick the right policy instruments um, to sort out the problem. Meanwhile, of course, we know our, the cost of our welfare states has gone on increasing, as now in most OECD countries, is pretty unaffordable. Uh, growth has slackened, and yet the traditional left will still has come up with ideas for actually pun- punishing entrepreneurship or through high punitive tax rates. And um, the, that understanding that there's no such thing as a free lunch, and I don't dispute I absolutely agree with you that those who most benefited from the free lunch are people near the top of the pile people who have known how to fight for their sexual interests and who have been bought by politicians. Uh, and I absolutely share with you that same, uh, your, your same, um, uh, that same sort of aversion uh, to the way certain interest groups, certain client groups have actually done quite well out of the system. A lot of people have le- been left behind, and I also agree with you, that that is economically inefficient as well as being uh, morally um, uh, offensive. But the fact of that, where are we now in all the developed economies? We are in a situation where welfare states, have become unaffordable, where t- benefits are very poorly targeted, insufficient use of means testing, certainly, um, and uh, insufficient and too much emphasis on transfers, including to people uh, who, are on a re- who have a reasonably good standard of living and uh, the young and the poor disproportionately, the unskilled disproportionately um, uh, harmed. And when um, moves, when political parties not always of the right, sometimes of the modernising, let's say centre-left, come up with proposals uh, to actually change things straight away, the cry goes out, they're trying to dismantle our universal system of benefits and everything, our, our rightful inheritance that we've built up since the Second World War. Take Sweden, for example, you mentioned the Scandinavian case, which is an interesting because Scandinavia is a hybrid, an interesting case, where on the supply side, microeconomically, um, they have a very flexible system, they have a system of flexible labour markets and what they call, of course, flexis- security, um, with a generous system of welfare benefits. Well, even the Scandinavians have had to bite the bullet. Denmark, Sweden, this last conservative-led government um, has had to has really overhauled the benefit system. They've introduced a universal voucher system for education. The social democrats and the far left really strongly opposed what the last quote-unquote bourgeois centre-right government did in Sweden. Uh, saw that it was the existing Swedish model was unaffordable any longer, um, and it's worked, and they were re-elected. It's not to say that it's still not a quite a generous welfare uh, model compared with other European economies, but the problems that had to be tackled there of a bloated state of too high levels of spending, including with uh, disincentives to work, um, and more important priorities to, to target spending on, um, they started to tackle that. It was actually a centre-right government who started to tackle that.
1: Can you just uh, explain a bit more hmm. what you would do about inequality, apart from education, what would you do about this growing wage disparity and dispersion, this uh, growing number of people on very low pay, uh, insecure work, and growing uh, very high pay at the very top, and the hollowing out of the middle?
2: Well, uh, Polly, I'm I'm not. I'm, I'm not an economist. I think that is a does trend I mean, is to be discouraged. Okay. Uh, does it matter? It does matter if um, uh, people at the bottom of the pile can't see that through their industry and enterprise uh, and hard work and commitment, that they cannot better their lot. Why should they bother in that And that is economic. Again, apart from the fact, it's personal it's morally offensive. That is economically inefficient for society um, a, as a whole. Uh, and when they see people who are less deserving obviously get large sums of money, um, and forms of crazy remuneration packages and so on, they rightly ask themselves, why should they bother? Of course that is to be deplored. The question is what do you do in a free society, in a free economy, short of state diktats, to actually discourage uh, to discourage that? It's, it's difficult. There is a point at which clearly, um, and, and this is the argument about where you set the min- minimum wage, there is a point at which... Um, uh, in which you actually can risk destroying jobs. And we know that the single most important way to tackle poverty in all OECD economies is to get people into jobs. Uh, because unemployment is the single biggest cause of, of poverty. Uh, it's yes, something it's which not, I think we have,
1: we have now nearly two thirds of the poor are in work. So that's no longer the case. I mean it is a very important or cause part time it's a very it's a very important cause of poverty and of course everybody's better off for all sorts of reasons in work. But that's the one thing here, Duncan Smith will never talk about. The big speech about poverty measurement never mentioned in work poverty, and that's the real crisis.
2: But isn't isn't that? But it,
1: it doesn't. It, you know, it doesn't get you out.
2: But isn't that where the, the tackling the perverse effects of disincentives uh, and actually making it profitable, uh, make it worthwhile to work? That is work that is afoot. I don't. That has not been tackled in this country for the last 30, 40 years. And and this government has recognised it as being a problem uh, and is actually, Ian Duncan Smith, as you said, and you didn't call his bona fides into question, um, has been trying to find more sensitive policy instruments to actually uh, make work worthwhile and to get people off uh, off benefit. That must be right. But every time, the last Labour government accepted that as well. But the cry, if you like, from the traditional left every time you try to do that, is that it's punishing, it's punishing the poor. Well, we have to do better. We have to think rather more cleverly. And I think that's what heart, he's trying still to about do. The
1: unemployed, hmm. all right. You attack the the unemployed. What about the fact that people in work? This is about the finding it out, That 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 is the essential problem. If you could make work really pay, if you could make sure that people were lifted out of poverty, that they didn't need state subsidies to subsidise maybe two or three Mm. rubbish jobs uh, working very hard, Um, there's something functionally wrong with the economy when that's the case, when people work that hard and have no chance of progressing whatever and Mm. are still... Well, I don't think we
2: disagree over the objective here. We're we're groping for what the the, the policy instrument which has eluded politicians are to now, which can actually tackle the problem, but I don't think we're setting out demarcation lines between what is progressive and what is not progressive or, or what is reactionary. But this point about the, we're having to reform the welfare state: a, because it's unaffordable; b, because it's very poorly targeted, and disproportionately, people who should not be in receipt of uh, transfers are receiving them. And the, but the poorest so and most vulnerable, and, and the young people. I
1: mean, a lot of that gone was not very much. Well, we
2: still have universal yeah. benefit. We still have child benefit, even though that's being that's uh, that's being reformed. Yes. reformed. There is no excuse for it, really. These well, subsidies well, for the middle class you. I've subsidies, been about subsidies because that. we're I agreed. We're small. I think not we're not good.
1: In the, in, in, the, in the sweep of what we're talking about, these, you know, remaining, my free bus pass insane, all of that, these are little bits, Then, really not what it's made about in a big sense. Um, you talked about butsculism and what a disaster it was. That was the period, well, you said it was sort of failed okay. in some way. That was the period of the greatest upward mobility of working class people ever, post-war era you know, whether it was Macmillan building the houses, it was the whole education settlement, plate glass universities, all of that, towards the end of the 70s, we became rapidly more equal in terms of incomes, more equal than we'd ever been. So the story from sort of 1900 up to about then was one of what I would call progress. Uh, Things got better. We got more equal. People got more opportunities. Not enough. And after that, Thatcher broke it. Uh, to hell with this consensus, don't like any of this stuff, we will have big bang, take the lid off the top, you know, eat what you kill in the city, and massive amounts of money made by the people at the top, and pretty much devil-take-the-high-most at the back. Um, and since then, she, when she came to power... Uh, One in seven children was living below the poverty line. When she left, it was one in three. Labour managed to reduce that by a quarter. Not enough, but not bad. The biggest reversal has been in a long while, so you can't say Labour didn't have the answers. It had quite a lot of answers to making things a hell of a lot better for a hell of a lot of people. It might not have been radical or reformist enough. But um, it's not the right story to say that somehow butskillism was the bad bit. It was actually our good
2: time. Uh, I, I hate sorry, to
0: interrupt, I, I, but actually, I, I, I um, to to we sorry.
2: have only half an hour left. Oh okay. sure. <laughs> and, was... and
0: so, I think it would be a good time to maybe open it and.
2: If, if, if I, if I may, yeah, uh, I, I, get I it, sorry, I just, open it, uh, open uh, up. just be, uh, yeah, very quick. Um, public spending uh, after the the early eighties, as you know, uh, uh, we went into a period of, of solid economic growth in that government under that government and in fact and the the economy that was bequeathed to Labour in 97 was actually a very robust one And public spending for all the reputation of Thatcher on health and education, all that, went up in real terms very substantially. we see many more people went into higher education. I think there was a trend which is fairly uninterrupted, actually, throughout the second world, the the post-war period. And I'm not taking issue with busculism. I'm just saying that the particular model that it offered is one which is uh, not as sophisticated or as targeted as it ought to be and risks becoming unaffordable. If certain structural deficiencies in it are not are not, um, are, 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 not um, are not tackled, so I, I would disagree with you. Yes, the, the rich kids in the city in the 1980s story, uh, unpleasant and distracting. I don't think that was what was really going on. There was one thing of just as I you the old chair. There was a lady here. I know you want to speak who uh, who's done a lot of work on progressive um, uh, on uh, on sort of prog- the idea of progress in politics. I don't know if she heard, because she. Email from Nottingham University.
0: Yeah, right. Is could she, you put up your hand if you can? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So is that
2: is that in is
1: the the audience.
2: yes? Because okay. we had sorry. said that too. sorry. Yes. Yeah, so then maybe we, you. Should, um, we should should give
0: you the we have microphones come around. So if you could wait for one thing, I just wanted to um, sort of pick up on that. I took away from this, the debate so far is um, a thing that you uh, that I found interesting in the sense that you said we're actually in a post ideological age now, and that's why the term progressive has maybe become vacuous and we should maybe replace this... Replace it, whereas policy and distress. No, it's actually the opposite. We're in a very ideologized sort of space of debate, and I think that's maybe something we can come back to as well um, yeah. when we see the questions from the audience. But yeah, I think um,
3: well, should t- should give you an opportunity to. Okay. Uh, make well, a thank you. Uh, my name Emily Robinson from the University of Nottingham. Um, I'm, I was really interested in, in this topic. Um, I mean, I'm I'm working on sort of changing meanings of of the word progressive, and, and I think the debate today has really kind of um, you know highlighted some of the disagreements that there are, and, and this will—I um, think basically the, the sort of contrast between the, the ideological meaning, the saying that this is something to do with equality, with being on the left, with with wanting to progress society in a particular direction, and then the broader um, sort of descriptive terms that Morris brought out in terms of all it. Actually, it's just about change in any direction, and I'm really struggling with with how those things became aligned, and, and you know what that means and how people understand it actually. I think that that's an important thing that maybe has not been talked about today. So um, you both started from the position that you know, we, we know what this term means, it's been overused it's been appropriated and, and so on and so on. I'm increasingly unsure that it is widely known outside of rooms like this um, I think when you say to people in the street what does being progressive mean they would have little idea and most would not associate it with, with centre-left politics which Um, I had a YouGov poll done last spring, which surprised me intensely, the results. Um, I was expecting to still find something to do with social reform, with equality, with redistribution, with with liberalism. I was interested to see whether um, the coalition had had managed to sort of reclaim it. But actually, it seemed that there was very little sense that it had ever been associated with those things at all. In fact, um, Boris Johnson uh, was the most progressive political figure, and the royal family came out. Um, close to the top as well, which is a Republican was very upsetting to me personally. Um, so I think I think we sort of get stuck in this um, sort of political narrative about liberal politics, basically. And I and I'm not sure that I, basically I think it's the difference between being progressive in a in a political sense and being a, which isn't always the same thing. Um, and obviously it depends how you define progress. But yes, it's been a very interesting discussion for me. So thank you. Oh, I love that.
1: Uh, Bar- Boris in the Royal Family, right? I'll never use. It.
3: <laughs>
1: but then if you think how painfully ignorant people are about any political concepts and it's why you're always reaching out for language of, that makes sense to people, that isn't abstract and isn't isms and uh, you know I thought I think Ged Miliband's done well with One Nation I mean it's an, in, it's an inside joke that it was disraeli Israelis, it doesn't really matter it works very well. It's simple. It says what it what, what it means, and it immediately it, it, it socks it to the Tories without having to mention them. You know, you are you are for the few without having to be rude about them. And I think that's a good. I think that's quite a good one. We'll see if it flies or not. Who knows? They're only really just beginning with that big society. Mm-hmm was too odd a concept, I think, and it didn't it didn't really quite resonate. People didn't know what it meant. I mean those who, who were already political either thought it was great because it meant volunteering or they hated it because they thought it meant cutting the state and using volunteers instead. But I don't think out there it seems the pollsters seem not to think that works. I mean can you think of of successful terms that have caught on in recent post you know in, in recent years. I mean we are much less Conversant with political language, partly since the decline in trade unionism, which was a way in which people learnt trade, learnt the language of politics, and they don't much anymore. Yeah. But well, you can't think of any of any that have, or any that have worked, you know, right or left or anywhere. Has, mm-hmm. has anything really resonated? I don't know. People talk about you know, neoliberalism and libertarianism. Okay, cooperative. cooperative. <laughs> Yes, I mean, it's fine. It, it's either a shock or it carries a lot of rather ancient baggage. But, I mean, obviously anyone who knows about it, it's a very warm word, cooperating and cooperators. Choice mm. is a very good example of a very slippery word, yes. <laughs> How do you feel about
2: choice? Well, it's, it's not a... I mean, nobody is, I'm aware, has used it as a mobilising slogan or a title of a political party, Typically, right-wing parties will, will set it out as an important value and something to encourage and promote. I'm um, just thinking in terms of political labels, though. What do you call a political party or a think tank uh, or a manifesto? Um, and uh, uh, groping for words that actually mean, say, something, apart from just generally sound, sounding exciting and dynamic or fair. I mean, they either appeal to a no- notion of justice as fairness or they appeal to some notion, some dynamic or enterprising or freedom kind of idea. I guess they're all, and typically the right would be in the latter, and maybe a notion of fairness or justice. But, of course, it, it, those terms are so I mean, you know, the, 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 the right-wing populist party in Poland is called the Law and Justice uh, Party. Um, and um, the, the, uh, the Progress Party in Denmark uh, is a right-wing anti-tax um, populist Foujardist uh, party. So uh, there's such fluidity and I'm not surprised what you said about uh, what polling had revealed about, about progressive as being spectacularly opaque. Um, I guess in case of Boris Johnson one might suppose it's just he, he conveys dynamism and the word progress has got some sort of dynamic uh, though you wouldn't, of course, say that of the royal family. No, exactly. uh, 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 wonderful, as I personally think they are, um, but somewhat inert at the same time, I don't think. um so. Think the first so,
1: slogan anybody's used in recently was 2005 Labour slogan, I think devised by Alan Milburn. Forward, not back. All over the buses and everything, forward, not back. <laughs> it was but, uh, preposterous. I think... It's a bit like but, that, you think. But
2: it is just motherhood, isn't it? I mean, this is the problem. Progress is particularly annoying in that way because, I mean, who can take issue with progress? Who would say that they want to turn the clock back, apart from a few thinkers at the end of the French Revolution? I mean, I don't know anybody like that. Um, so uh, it just doesn't get us very far. It's banal at best. Um, uh, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is motherhood.
0: Let's take, let's take a few more questions um, from the audience. Yes, the, uh, someone in the green T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, not I think you
4: turned it off. You... Is that better? Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of the discussion after your presentations has been from an economic background on what progressive might mean in terms of taxation and uh, unemployment. But I was wondering whether you thought that it might have any uh, meaning more towards lifestyle or towards enjoyment or happiness or other ways of measuring uh, a society uh, and particularly uh, as, you, as you mentioned an awful lot about how unemployment was the biggest cause of uh, unhappiness and indeed uh, financial poverty in the country whether there would be some way of uh, getting people to think differently about work and about whether they spend enough time not working, and if there would be some way to make people work more equally in terms of hours as a means of arriving at a situation where people earn more equally.
2: Um, Well, um, I think that, well, um, are you alluding to sort of the releases of more leisure time to, I mean, measuring quality of life by other things than work and releasing time to be able to come to this fuller happiness, um, or yes,
3: in terms of, and, you know, in a very practical uh, way,
4: if there are fewer people working more hours, uh, then naturally there are going to yeah. be more people who are in poverty, whereas if there were more people working fewer hours, perhaps everyone would arrive at a, a more equal level of happiness, and that seems to me to fit certainly Polly's definition of uh, progressive society.
1: Those were sort of ideas that were very much floating around when Cameron first took over the leadership, when we were in good times. And he talked about well-being, and there is now a well-being inde- index. It didn't really fly either, because people are very quite suspicious of politicians who seem to try and colonise everything in their lives. And I think that given, in this country, how cynical people are about politics and politicians, how much they detest them, and they detest the practice of politics... That they become quite suspicious if politicians start saying I want to make you happy Uh, I care about your family and your quality of parenting and all these Uh, quality of parenting is fine if you're talking about really dysfunctional people then everybody wants to to teach them how to parent but when you're talking about the society at large and not people who've got serious problems people get very uneasy about it they're not sure and why we have free votes on these social questions because they don't really like to feel that it's they've thoroughly entered the political, party political domain. And as for the part-time thing, I mean, the trouble we have now is that all of these people, so many of these people are part-time, desperately trying to get extra hours, can't get extra hours, um, just to pay the rent, to put the food on the table. Um, so I think it's, it, it, it's the right idea for good times, but it doesn't quite feel the right idea at this moment. And Except apart from the very wealthy, if you can persuade people in the city's to job share, That'd be a good
2: thing. Be aware oh, of redistributing. But, but, if, if, I, if sorry, if, if I'm, if I, if I, if I may, um, what's clear is that everybody is going to have to work much harder. Um, and Certainly, in the in 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 the West, um, uh, there are adjustments to make in terms of which which actually can enhance the quality of life, quality of child rearing. The government's got a consultation out at the moment and is going to coming up with proposals to make parental leave to distribute arrangements. Uh, more equitably uh, for fathers and mothers. Um, and there are some useful adjustments to be made there. But it, the broad, in the broad scheme of things, what's absolutely clear is that we in the West and the OECD economies have been massively overpaying ourselves um, in relation to what we were actually producing and the competitiveness of the goods that we're producing. Uh, that's quite clear. Um, some people, some economists are suggesting we're going to have to take a 20 25% cut in our, in our living standards. Um, just to meet the competitive challenge from the East and from the, develop- from, from the, East, from the developing uh, economies. And that's to say nothing of the demographic time bomb, time bomb uh, which we're all familiar with, and which is, meaning, which is already meaning you know, more people, fewer people, are, uh, are, are, are there to actually work to support an ageing population.
1: That's a very interesting idea. If we're going to have to cut, I don't know if I accept it, but it's an interesting idea – if we are going to have to cut 25% of our living standards, who decides how we do that, that we are all in this together? Yeah. Who says, right, for a start, rent controls, otherwise nobody can live anywhere? Who says house prices? Who says, doesn't it take an extraordinary dirigiste state to make that possible? I mean, how can people have a, a 25%... Percent drop unless their rents
2: drop. Well, the 25 percent maybe. I'm not an economist, and economists are at six and sevens over it. All I'm saying is that the basic analysis is we can't go on um, thinking there is such a thing as a free lunch. Uh, there isn't. We again have to make some it, Somebody, well, well, we have to, uh, as a society, we have to come through some collective form of decision making, decide how to prioritize those difficult decisions. I absolutely agree. Who um, uh, are elected representatives on the basis of choices, hopefully, which they set out candidly and clearly to us, will invite us to deliberate and to make some choices there. It won't be just uh, dirige state officials just deciding, uh, or some bunch of politicians who've hijacked uh, who've hijacked the ship of state, and then are going to inflict misery disproportionately on the uh, on the poorest section of society. I'm saying, let's not jump to conclusions, but there's some important challenges that we're going to have to face collectively uh, as a society. Um, and that this question, then, of the affordability of our systems, of our welfare uh, systems, not least, given the demographic um, time bomb, are, are very real ones, and it's for sure going to mean that some very difficult decisions have to be made, and for sure, it's going to mean that certain groups that have benefited perhaps disproportionately until now uh, are going to cry are going to cry foul. Uh, and we, and have, to brace, we have to brace. We have to brace ourselves. for what then. you
1: mean, because unless you make it real, hmm. who, uh, what bits of the welfare state? We know that health, that the NHS at whatever level you want to put it, is one of the most efficient systems in the world for bang for its buck. So we know that you know, an insurance-based system all the rest of it isn't more efficient, so you just have to say less health, maybe. Um, what are you saying about... When you keep saying welfare, I suspect you mean more benefit cuts. We have had benefit cuts that the Institute for Fiscal Studies says are without historic or geographical precedent. That's the first 18 billion. Another 10 billion is coming. All of these are things that hit the poorest most, and mostly it's the housing benefit. We're beginning to see the exodus from London and other expensive areas that have always been socially mixed, of people who cannot pay their rents because we're cutting the housing benefit without there being any state policy whatever about Rent controls or house prices, or any of that, for instance. I'd like to um, just no, take right. another no, few
0: mind. questions. Please, yes, <laughs> absolutely, please. Because <laughs> please. we are otherwise going to be running out of time. Let's take a question here in the, in the front.
5: Thank you. Polly, um, uh, I find you quite interesting. I come from the same sort of background as you. I'm into social policy, probably got similar political views to you, I expect. Um, but I sort of found myself being more inclined towards Morris during this presentation which I found odd because um, I just find it difficult because you seem to be so clear about your set of values and um, you know if you think about these sort of things like the example you gave about um, you know the the rules as principles was one example I was also thinking I don't know if anyone's heard of Blue Labour (laughs) Um, I don't know I can't remember the name of the political philosopher Morris Glassman
2: Glassman yeah um, yeah
5: but it's an interesting idea. Some elements of it are pretty peculiar, like negotiating with the BNP. I'm not sure I feel about that. But um, sort of the basic principle, as far as I can tell, is sort of changing the economic strategy, you know, making it less free market and more sort of you know, less towards the neoliberal um, perspective. But also immigration is one issue because the idea is that immigration disproportionately affects the, the poorest in society because of competition for jobs and things like that. Now, you know, traditionally that would be, you know, immigration would be progress, you know, immigration would be a sort of a value of the left, I would have thought. Now, do you see what I mean? There's sort of a for me that is, is an interesting discussion and um, I don't find it easy to come down very straightforward on that because to me that seems like you know really that seems like the best way to benefit that would benefit people a lot. I can't see how it wouldn't really. Um, and it seems that you sort of Responded to the arguments that Morris made with sort of quite sort of you know factual, empirical kind of responses. But do you not find it difficult sometimes with that? You know, oh, I think
1: immigration is the one of, is the most difficult, one of the most difficult. And I think that um, you know, I think it's extraordinary what Labour did in terms of just not really noticing. And they they started off by having these targets. Because mostly the focus was then on asylum seekers and reducing the numbers of, of asylum seekers. Processing them faster, but it sort of slipped away from them. And then Gordon Brown started saying, actually, you know, this makes us a billion a year richer or whatever. This is, you know, this is very good for the economy. Whether that was actually what he thought or whether it was just a way of kind of covering up for something that had happened, um, it was a bad misstep for Labour, I think. I think if you want a sense of social cohesion, the first thing you have to have is borders. You have to have borders in terms of law and order and borders in terms of physical borders of who am I sharing with? Am I sharing with the whole world or am I sharing with you know, a community of other taxpayers or other citizens? So I think it's very important you don't let that slide. And Labour did. Without... Without quite meaning to, him. they made you know Jack Straw. Nobody could call him sort of softy on on immigration. The word it wasn't a kind of liberal policy. Um, I can't quite account for it. Uh, the government is now being much tougher, but they're finding it hellishly difficult too. Um, you know, European migration. It is you know it's an absolute core value of Europe that people should be able to travel, whether they're Erasmus students or whoever they are. That if you have a free movement of capital within, a, free, no, within a, a single market there must be a free movement of people as well and maybe enough European countries will suddenly be in the rebellion and start saying you know, the people will start voting for far right parties and saying no, what
2: do you think? I, um, on your the point about immigration I, I think it's a very interesting test, litmus test actually. Um, though I don't think it actually proves anything either way, uh, paradoxically, uh, for what a progressive is. And I was interested in how you answered that uh, point, uh, Polly. I recall four or five years ago in the pages of Prospect magazine, uh, there was a very lively polemic launched by its editor, David Goodhart, uh, who wrote her an extended essay um, uh, saying why uh, uncontrolled immigration, or even high levels of immigration, were uh, damaging social cohesion. Uh, and, a, and a yardstick of social cohesion is the extent to which taxpayers um, are prepared to pay uh, for public services, uh, for, for their community, for their neatly their defined community, as you said, uh, Polly. Um, and there had to be, and there would be a point at which, if you ask people, uh, people's allegiance in the first instance is going to be their family, their friends, and then there's ever uh, thinning, declining sort of circles of allegiance, the further, um, al- the more alien people became to them. And the risk coming to a point, society risk coming to a point uh, at which uh, taxpayers' patience uh, would be taxed uh, a little bit too much and that that would undermine support for the welfare state and undermine social cohesion. Now he brought down on his head from the left um, a whole bunch of people, intellectuals, who are saying this is racist, this is your anti-immigration stance. Part of being progressive is is actually recognizing the common humanity of other human beings and if they manage to struggle to these shores and one form or other, um, then they should be welcomed and, and have full access to benefits and so on, welcomed into the, world, into the workforce and so on. And it was seen, and I, I spoke Labour to the minister
1: time... Minister that. You're I didn't You're about it. thinkers. You're not talking mm. about mm. politicians. I didn't hear Labour ministers. Yes, I
2: mean, they're elected politicians. They were, Few would say we're in favour politicians of, politicians of a free-for-all that. immigration. No, that's true. There are I plenty of people
1: that
2: did they? Uh, I don't know with any arts
1: still the Well they there did. was
2: certainly and said I remember talking to David Goodhart at the time the amount of of, of messages and hate mail he get from clearly people on the left um, maybe, maybe not electropos- well, maybe, uh, well maybe academics and, and intellectuals wretched but characters it, it, that it, they I are. think it is certainly um, a very that, uh,
0: interesting point when we're talking about you know, how, how should we think about progressive and yeah. in particular we had last night actually we had a discussion about cosmopolitanism and thinkers advancing this view that you know, inequality mm. should matter maybe at a global level not just at a, mm. a local level but um, I'd like to still um, take some, some more questions um, so how about that lady over there in the yeah, exactly.
6: Um, Morris, you mentioned Hegel in your presentation, and hearing you debating, it seems to me that there's a sort of Hegelian dialectic going on there, and, and the idea being that. Um, in conciliatory terms that um, the, say, government on the right advances in its progressive way and then the government on the left sort of debates and goes maybe backwards but not too much and then pro- goes you know, progressively in another direction. So um, and, and this sort of back and forth between governments and, and between positions um, doesn't necessarily uh, sort of um, defeat the idea that we're moving towards progress. So maybe that Hegelian teleology is not uh, is not dead yet. We're all moving towards, you know, attempting to find a, a, a freer, a fairer, a more whatever society we, we want to be. So we know where we're going. It's just that we're going in a sort of zigzag way, uh, <laughs> back and forth between left and right. But uh, I, don't see, I don't really see a disagreement on the basic values that we're aiming at, just the way to get there.
2: The um, thing about Hegel... And I'm conscious of the fact that there are certainly in this audience people who know a lot more about Hegel than I do. Certainly I know one one person who does has written quite a bit about him uh, and thought about him. Uh, The the problem with Hegel is that it seems to me a retrospective form of reasoning, saying that where we are now is the result of the idea or the spirit unfolding. And there is a logic to that, and that will continue, or part of his teleological um, uh, unfolding of, of, human, of, of human affairs and he sees a, a logic to that and a rationality to that and something which he actually effectively applauds. I've never been clear whether that is saying something very serious and important or whether that is just an post factor rationalisation of what has happened uh, because if it is so inclusive and so malleable as to be able to accommodate Um, as you say twists and turns and even backwards and forwards and so on say oh well that's okay that's the spirit unfolding and there's a logic to it and we probably will get to a better place I'm not sure whether that's a very significant statement or ultimately a banal one and I still, like many people I think have not made up their mind about Hegel so it's so, so a rather recondite answer to your question I'm afraid But well, I, I'm just...
1: It's the idea that we always live in the best of all possible worlds, that democracy must always throw thrown up the best of all possible results you have a bit of this and then a bit of that and somehow you end up with the perfect synthesis I'm afraid it's not how I feel about it. I feel much more like Winston Churchill pretty, democracy is pretty bloody awful but it's the best thing there is um, and it's a constant battle and I see it as a constant battle for more progressive ideas against um, more inegalitarian ideas and um, that there are forces that are not even ideas that are economic forces that you're battling against hugely which, are, which pull you constantly in, in the direction of greater inequality unless you try and correct for them quite consciously. Um, and the danger of free markets is that that's the way it takes you. Um, so, I don't think, I, I, I feel that we live in the best of all possible worlds in that sense of the perfect synthesis.
0: Let's have another question then. Um, got so many hands to choose from. Why don't we go to the back just to be equal, you know, egalitarian? I think the front, <laughs> middle, and
5: back. Hello. Um, firstly, thank you. My name is Jay Shaw. I'm a Canadian here doing my postdoctoral fellowship at Brunel. And um, uh, this has been immensely helpful and insightful, so thank you for that. And uh, my question is about, um, Mr. Fraser, your comment about post-ideological politics. It makes me think of um, American neopragmatists' notion of um, ideological ambivalence. And so, uh, considering I had my own interpretation and I understand Polly to have had her own, I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on what you meant by post-ideological politics.
2: Post-ideological politics. Well, I guess perhaps I'm somewhat conditioned by... I mean, historical debates since I mean, since the great battle lines were drawn after the Second World War between left and right, and then um, some sociologists started and um, political theorists started detecting what they saw as so sort of the end of ideology. Um, at least, what well, by that they meant that the big that the totalitarian ideologies, um, communism, fascism, national socialism, uh, hopefully were buried. Communism clearly wasn't still, but that least fascism, national socialism was, uh, communism would probably uh, collapse under its own contradictions. And at the end of the day, we were all basically Democrats, um, that we believed in social markets, broadly free market system, but regulated with an important providential role for the state, and that there was an emerging sort of consensus on that. Now, that possibly was premature. I mean, that was the end of the ideology debates in the fift- late 50s, early 60s. Uh, possibly that was premature. I would see, still see, a, a, a growing convergence, a trend towards convergence which I make no claims for originality, certainly between centre-left and centre-right, upteen people one runs into all the time, and I don't mean nerdy political scientists and anoraks of the type that I, I mix with, will say, at the end of the day, let's face it, yes, differences in rhetoric, some differences in emphasis, but centre-left and centre-right, is there really that much difference? And I'm hard-pushed, and I've always thought myself as fairly engagé on one side of the political debate, but if I really have to sort of, you know, Search, search pretty hard to find what the substantive differences are other than at the margins and using different traditions of political rhetoric which they've acquired from their own respective political, uh, political uh, traditions so um, it's not to say that there aren't still important decision, um, uh, disputes and arguments to be had over some questions of, distributional, of distributive justice um, uh, there are um, I don't think that they're seismic or existential in their importance and I certainly think that they are open to different interpretations of what constitutes an optimal outcome for the, group, the, the portion of society that we're most talking about this evening, namely um, the underprivileged and the underclass. I still think that is highly, highly contestable. Uh, there, there, are, there would be certain objective... We're talking
1: about the bottom half. We're not talking just about really at the bottom 2-3%.
2: Right, so you, you, so right. Okay, the squeeze middle, a large portion of the squeeze middle, as well. Okay, but the squeeze middle are, uh, are, are, are clearly, and I would put myself as an impecunious academic in that category. I hasten to add, lest anyone thinks I have inherited wealth or stores of money somewhere. Uh, squeeze middle are fe- feeling, feeling the pinch. Uh, they're not, uh, they're not uh, suffering desperately, but things are not ideal. I agree. Um, but these questions are ones which, all um, uh, uh, well, I was really trying to do. I wasn't trying to throw up so much dust um, as just, just to be willfully sort of playful uh, or contrary. I just saying I think that really it is very difficult to, A, to choose policy instruments which can incontrovertibly deliver a particular set of, 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 of outcomes in the way we would like them to, and B, to settle a substantive question of what constitutes Uh, a fair outcome or a good outcome for the least privileged in society because there are many different components of what constitutes the good life for them. Uh, I could imagine, I mean, I broadly buy into the Enlightenment narrative, but um, uh, is there any reason, is there any inherent reason why somebody, let's say, with pretty far-right views, I don't mean extremist views, but say, uh, who believes that um, everyone would be happier if we um, restored social hierarchy, Uh, we worshipped the monarchy, uh, the armed forces and the church uh, and had a pretty sort of, sort of brutal system of law and order um, uh, we're not used to thinking of the term progressive in those terms but if they can say society would be happier and that would get us to a better place, do we have clinching arguments to tell them, other than yes. say, well, this is my set of beliefs and that's your set of beliefs and we can all argue subjectively about what progressive is? Do we have a convincing, compelling set of arguments to say your concept of progressive is a travesty or a distortion? I'm not sure we do.
1: I'm not, it's inherently briefly. contestable.
2: It's too contestable as Let, say, let me just say very
1: time. briefly um, that... There is a, a sort of, a, not that I put you at all far on the right, I know you're only, you know, a, a moderately, you're a, it's a very much a centre-right figure. Um, there has always been a delusion on the right that they're not ideological, that it's anybody on the other side of the line which is ideological, and they're just the ordinary common sense point of view, that's the way the world is, and if you challenge it, Some you're ideological. Um, And I challenge that view. I think we're both intensely ideological, and I think we've rather proved it this evening. And with
0: that, we're actually at the end of our time. Thank you very much for the lively debate.